Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 23rd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Nothing has changed, but everything might change in how the state deals with people when it's discovered they are using drugs. At least uh, that has been the experience in the past when uh, the citizens' assemblies made recommendations on social issues like same-sex marriage and abortion. Over the weekend, 85% of members of uh, the citizens' Assembly voted to decriminalise drugs and that instead of being prosecuted for possession of drugs for personal use, a comprehensive health-led approach should be followed. What does that mean? Well, time will tell. Gino Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest, joins us now. And I think at a minimum, this is what you would have been hoping for, Gino Kenny. And it follows on from six, seven months of deliberations that the citizens assembly had hearing from a people expert in this field with various opinions on the subject. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this recommendation that drugs be decriminalised and do you know what it means or what it might mean in effect? Yeah. Good morning Michael. Yeah I mean look it's welcome that the citizens assembly have you know deliberated on this kind of uh, recommendation and obviously there's about 36 recommendations and they're kind of, you know, looking at the broad spectrum of drug use in Ireland. Um, but it is good that they have recommended drug decriminalisation. Now, there was a kind of ambiguity in relation to the wording of that. You know, they basically what stems from the Sydney Assembly is the health led approach. But I looked up the press release this morning and you know, what the Senate Assembly's press release says, that it's, it's you know, it's tantamount to uh, decriminalisation. But look, let's not kind of get caught up in the semantics. Okay. The main thing and the most important thing is that the recommendations now are taken by the government uh, and the government legislate in relation to reflecting not only the Senate Assembly, but also public opinion. You know, I've said this on many times on your mm-hmm. show, Michael, you know, the, the present laws around drug use don't work. In fact, they're actually counterproductive for everybody. Mm. Uh, so we need to do something different, and that's reflected in the Assembly. They reject the status quo, 
and they want to move on. Now, I would have gone much further, yeah. you know, in some ways in relation to what was the terminology and regulation around cannabis and so forth. Now, that was extremely tight. 39 extremely to 38, tight. wasn't it? Uh, I mean, they yeah. were very close to recommending that cannabis was yeah. legalised. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, again, there was even confusion around the voting around that. So, but look, let's not get caught up in that. The main thing in relation to the recommendations is that this is taken on by the government and legislated for. Hmm. I would be slightly pessimistic that they will actually do this. Um, but let's see. I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping I'm wrong. Hmm. What's the next step? A, a report has to be drawn up and that will be given to the government uh, before the end of the year, I think. Yeah, the report is kind of compiled. That's given to the government. They reflect on the recommendations and then you're talking about early next year. You know, whether the government will do anything in relation to the recommendations, I'm sure they will, hmm. but there's, they're under no obligation to legislate in relation to some of the issues that the Citizens Assembly have um, pointed to. But, you know, obviously people are in opposition and obviously there would be some members of the government, you know, calling for, you know, to move ahead in relation to this issue and obviously reflect what the Citizens Assembly says and do change law in relation to drug decriminalisation. I think that's one of the most important kind of aspects to it. And what drug decriminalisation will mean is that you need to change the law around the Misuse of Drugs Act, which stems back from 1977. So that would mean as somebody that has in their personal possession, any small quantity of illicit drugs would not be prosecuted. They would not go to, mm. through the criminal justice system. And what would that uh, mean, though? I mean, does that mean that you could stand at the door of a guard station smoking a joint uh, and that you couldn't be arrested for it? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, any small amount of drugs, wherever, you know, is on that list of misuse of drugs, if you're caught mm. with that in your possession you will not be seek a criminal sanction. You'll obviously go to a persuasion committee. But eventually, you know, and this is the kind of, I suppose, the weaknesses in, around decriminalisation, uh, you can then possibly be prosecuted in relation to kind of if you habitually offend. So um, it's better, I mean, it, it's better than what we have now. But, you know, it, to me, it doesn't go far enough. You know, decriminalisation is a good concept, a good model. Yeah. But the elephant in the room is that the black market still exists for illicit drugs where people will but, use. But, right? but on, on, under that circumstance, though, I mean, if you're decriminalising drugs and you're saying you're going to have a health-led approach, uh, mm. what what would happen under that circumstance or under any circumstance where Gardaí find people in possession of drugs, whether it's because they were taking them at the door of the guard station or elsewhere? Uh, is the guard meant to refer them on to some health agency or to a doctor or what happens? Yeah, there's a, I mean, probably a good example is in what, what happened in Portugal 20 years ago. And they had a really kind of really bad situation in Portugal in relation to you know, overdose deaths and so forth and, you know, drugs and so forth. So basically what happens is that if somebody is found with quantities of drugs for their for their personal use, then they're kind of directed, not towards a court, they're directed for, you know, more counselling, uh, you know, dissuasion mm. kind of committee. So that's a better model. That is a much better model. But look, if people want to use drugs, who who are we to say to moralise them? You know, mm. I don't. 
you know, I just think, you know, we need to go beyond yeah. that. Okay. And if people want to use drugs, that's their business. I'll be honest with you, that is their business. Is, it, their, is business. it their business, though, if they do it in public? And I think that's one concern that people oh, might that's have. Different. Yeah. that's different. Yeah, obviously, I mean, if somebody's using cocaine or using, you know, heroin, I mean, obviously, yeah. in public, I mean, that's not acceptable. But people do that, Michael. And obviously, that's why you would, you know, we've always said that, you know, supporting, you know, safe supervised injection mm. rooms and so forth. And that's, that's a good model of actually taking people away from using drugs on the street. Okay, but if heroin, 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 a good example, uh, and I don't think anybody likes to cite of somebody injecting heroin into their body uh, and they don't want to see it on the streets, they don't want their children to see it and they don't want their children coming across the needles afterwards and all of that sort of stuff. But if it's not criminal to do that, uh, would the Gardaí uh, have uh, the remit or the interest in stopping somebody uh, and what could they do except direct them towards a health professional? Yeah, I mean, even at the moment, uh, if somebody is using drugs, like under Class A drugs, I mean, obviously the police, I mean, are they going to arrest them for small amounts of drugs? I mean, it's quite arbitrary. Um, but in them circumstances where there was policy of drug decriminalisation. I think, you know, in so in certain scenarios, yeah, some there, somebody would need intervention if they're using drugs on that scale. Well you know, and especially in public. <coughs> so look, it's not perfect, Michael, mm. <coughs> by any means. But it's better than the model that we have at the moment. Right? Okay. Uh, will it make it worse is the next question, I suppose, that people will have. Uh, I was reading a, an article by Catherine Conlon, uh, who uh, works with Safe Food, a public health doctor there. Uh, and she was saying that the experience in Portugal, uh, which you've been talking about, is that in 2001, 7.8% of people used drugs. That's risen to 12.8%. Right, Okay. Well, look, I mean, that may be so. Um, I mean, that's 22 years ago. I mean, the kind of proliferation of all drugs, you know, you see cocaine. Cocaine is a, a, one of the probably most well-consumed uh, drugs of the illicit kind of, of the illicit market mm. in Ireland. Um, and the use of drugs is up in most countries, in most countries. And obviously you have to kind of, in relation to the recommendations the Assembly, Assembly has said, there needs to be a kind of an education around kind of prevention, around treatment services. And the reason why people take drugs, a lot of people take drugs, Michael, don't have a problem with. In fact, the vast majority of people will, that use drugs yep. will never have an issue with. There are some people that will have a problematic use with them drugs, mm. right? And I suppose you've preempted my next question. Um, so, what is the consequence, if any, for taking drugs? If you're found to be taking uh, illegal drugs, if drugs are to be decriminalised, if you're taking this health-led approach, there's no point yeah. in referring somebody to treatment if they don't need treatment. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I mean, obviously, that's one of the kind of caveats of drug, drug decriminalisation that. You know, if a member of the guard stop you, I mean, sometimes they can say, look, if be on your way or whatever and so forth. And sometimes in situations, and I presume it's happened in Portugal, where somebody can be kind of directed towards, you know, for counselling and so forth. Um, 
And that's that's fair enough. Uh, but nobody ever should be prosecuted or go through the criminal justice system for using drugs, regardless of what that drug is. So you then you have to look at a different model. You know, c- cannabis, for example, should be completely legalised and regulated, right? And prosecuting people for using drugs or using cannabis or even the consum- or the whole sale and supply is just a waste of time. It's absolutely a waste of time. Mm. And, you know, that... The Sins Assembly did reflect that, that we need to go beyond, particularly around cannabis, mm. that we need to look at a model of regulation. And that model is a much better model than we have now. I mean, mm. it just doesn't work, you know. And we've had six decades of this, Michael, that, you know, it's largely policy that have failed. Um, and whether we use drugs or not, and the vast majority of people never use drugs, but those, you know, uh, you know, for society, we have to look and reflect Mm. What has has gone wrong, you know? Because there is a terrible dark side to drugs, terrible dark side, you know? Um, and we have to kind of understand why people, you know, get into addiction, why people get into kind of the trauma of all, kind of, mm. you know, uh, drugs and so forth. But the best way to try to understand that is not to criminalise people. Mm. Because if you start criminalising people, which we've done that, that kind of sends people down a different avenue and it just doesn't work. So this model of, you know, you know, not criminalising the person. And I would go beyond that. We need to, then we need to be more mm. radical. We need a form of regulation. And there's, there, there's a bigger debate in society. Now, I'm not... Well, I'm not I, 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 because, I wonder with cannabis, if decriminalising it will make the criminal gang problem worse because I don't think any citizen uh, will be worried about using cannabis if there is no criminal prosecution. Uh, if that's what they decide to do, uh, they won't be worried about being arrested. So why not use it, they might say. Uh, but that means that there's a guaranteed market for the gangs. Uh, and we all know yeah. about the gangs and the killings and the knives and the bullets and the yeah. beatings and all the stuff that goes with it. Yeah. So there is, I suppose, there's limitations to decriminalisation. And that's why I've always said and others have said we need to go beyond decriminalisation. You know, uh, particularly around cannabis. Now, uh, there's a, a longer debate around, um, you know, regulation of all drugs. That's probably for another day. Um, but I think that debate needs to start. I don't think we're there at the moment in Ireland. I think at the moment we're heading towards a model of decriminalisation, right? And that's a good step. Um, but I think it needs to go further because, at the, you know, Michael, who, who, the controlled drugs that we're talking about are controlled by the black market. They're not controlled by the state, and that's the kind of, I suppose, the you know, the contradictory nature of what we're talking about. Because mm. once you don't have control, others will fill that vacuum, and that's largely the black market. And they will use some serious intimidation violence and drag all sorts of people into their kind of realm. Mm. So we need to take that back control. When I say me, society, the state needs to control, take back certain control. Now the black market will, to a certain degree, will always exist to a certain degree but you need to kind of take control back and to take control back you need to change the laws. But that that's not an option for the government now, is that right? The government can only consider the recommendations made by the Citizens Assembly which is to decriminalise drugs or, or can the government go further uh, and then move this into an Oireachtas committee to explore it further? Well they can go as further, you know, they can go as you know, further as the as they want, Michael Bailey at the end of the day. You know, but I my guess is that they will 
hopefully take a lot of the recommendations on, all of them, hopefully. Uh, the main recommendation, obviously, is around drug decriminalisation. Now, in order to do that, they need to change the present laws. That's the Misuse of Drugs Act. Uh, in order to reflect them recommendations. And if that did happen, that would be a very, I think, a positive outcome in relation to the Sins Assembly. But I am slightly pessimistic that this government will actually do that. They may take the other recommendations on. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But there's been a kind of a, a kind of from my observations, particularly elements of the government of which are like arch conservatives in relation to you know not even staying in status quo, but are very 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 reluctant to go down the road of decriminalisation. Mm. Um, but look at we'll see we'll see. Okay, maybe it's because of what they're hearing from their constituents, uh, and I suppose that is uh, the essence of politics. Gino, we leave it there for the moment. Thank Thanks. you indeed Thanks for much. joining us. Gino Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest. So, what is it you'd be saying to your politicians? The Citizens' Assembly has met for seven months at this stage. It's made its recommendations to decriminalise drugs, and it very nearly voted to legalise drugs. That vote, as mentioned earlier on, 39 to 38 to uh, legalise cannabis. Uh, I'm not sure if if that's what I said, Uh, but just cannabis alone, 39 to 38. Uh, If you'd like to let us know what it is you want to say to your politicians or otherwise, uh, give us a call 041-983-2000. That's 983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Do you believe that drugs should be decriminalised Criminalized or not, or cannabis legalized or not. 086 1800 658. We'd love to hear your opinion on this if you want to text or WhatsApp that number or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Early maintained roads are part of the reason that we're seeing accidents across the country and indeed a huge spike in the number of fatalities and the Minister for Transport needs to get real and rethink some of the Green Party policies on transport because they've resulted in a cut to the road maintenance budget and this is according to local Sinn Féin councillor Anton Waters who joins us together with Green Party councillor Marianne Butler. A very good morning to both of you and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Anton Waters, uh, you're complaining that a a lot of work just can't be done because of uh, the cut in the maintenance budget and that's making the roads dangerous. Good morning, Michael, and good morning, Marianne. Yeah, look, Michael, road safety, I don't know how many times I've been on your show talking about road safety, and um, after the budget, we've now seen a £150 million uh, cut in the road safety budget. It's the road networks and road safety section of the budget, so it's a, it's a significant amount of money. Like Every year, we're looking for increases in funding, and um, you don't like to see anything being reduced, but especially road the roads. Um, it's such, such an important issue, and as of last Tuesday, I know um, there was um, so many deaths on the road, or like there was um, 152 sorry, fatalities as of last Tuesday on the roads this year. So, like, there's so many people getting hurt and injured, and unfortunately dying on a road. So, we, I'm pushing for more funding for Loud County Council, not less, Michael. Mm. What do you make of that, Marianne Butler? Um, firstly, uh, 
Um, in one way, I'm absolutely agreeing with Anton, but not on the, the issue of the cut. Um, I think the particular case that, that he mentioned in Carlingford as well, I think if it, hap- if it was happening to me um, and a car had crashed into my home or my property three times in six months, I'd be a nervous wreck and I'd absolutely want the council to do something about it. And the council does have to do something about it. I checked with the department um, to find out what was going on. Um, and the answer that I got was there was no such cut. The transport spending has actually gone up by 6%. Um, and what appears to be a 10% reduction is actually just um, a technicality of the zero emissions vehicle Ireland budget moving to sustainable mobility where it belongs. But they also just mentioned that all budgets for roads have been maintained with additional funding allocated specifically to road safety. And there was a strong message that the government are very conscious of the spike in road fatalities. And I'm very conscious of, even in the last 48 hours, two vulnerable road users have lost their life, one in the neighbouring county of um, Monaghan, um, a lady off her bicycle in Monaghan Town, and my deepest sympathies to um, the families here. And we do have to get better at this. But... Like, what I want to do is I want to make sure that the council, in this particular instance, have applied for that additional funding to deal with that case in Carlingford. Um, and myself and Anton need to get the answers there. Mm. And myself and Anton and 27 other councillors will sit down together on the 20th of November to adopt our budget for 2024. Um, and we need to make sure that there is sufficient funding there. Okay. Specifically, when it comes to the likes of our regional roads, that road out to Carlingford, Green Ore, um, like the numbers are there, like in 2022, we spent 5.4 million on regional road maintenance and improvement. In 2023, we adopted five and a, five and a half million, over five and a half million. So like we are spending a lot on it. Right. Um, Let me go back to Anton Waters about uh, Canon. We'll ask you uh, about the crash barrier that you're looking to be put a, in place following the €50,000 worth of damage to that house following three separate accidents or incidents, uh, maybe more accurately put. Uh, but what do you make of what you've just heard there? There's been no decrease to the maintenance budget. Well, I see it. I have it here in front of me, Michael, um, in relation to the transport section of the budget, minus 10%. I have it here in black and white. And my colleague um, raised it in the doll last week, Martin Kenny. He raised it and it directly with the Tarnish, or sorry, the Tarnish, or, or I think it was Tarnish or the Taoiseach, sorry, it was the Taoiseach. He raised it with last week and it's there in black and white, you know what I mean? Now, they did say they were going to go and look at us and they were going to try and see um, about other projects and other stuff that was happening, but it's definitely a reduction. But come back to what me and Marianne are on the same page with a lot of stuff on this. Both of us are pushing, we're on the Board of Management of Bush Post Primary School, we're pushing for road safety measures there. Anything along the regional road um, from Ballymascanlan out to Omis, um, it's a huge um, volume of traffic every day and it's something I'm very passionate about. And as I said at the start, road safety is the number one issue I get raised with me every day of the week. But um, going back to the case where why I raised this was yeah. um, over the last number of months and actually the last number of years I've been working with one particular resident and uh, family who are living in the Carniford area who've had significant damage done to their house as a result of cars going off the road and damaging their property. And to me, any reduction is dwindling the chance of them getting um, the works done. There was 174000 given to Loud County Council for crash barriers last year, another 10% on top of that, 
would have well and truly covered what I'm looking to get done. I've been speaking to the council, Michael, on this a number of times. I think it's roughly works out a little bit €250 per metre for a crash barrier. And there's a lot of, um, in a 10% increase, that's a lot of crash barriers. I know it's not all for crash barriers. It's all for road safety works, be it dealing with dangerous junctions, Hmm. signage, road markings. And I take it there were uh, fairly significant uh, collisions uh, to cause so much damage. Doesn't sound like a a very pleasant place to live. What, what, what What are the people in the house saying about it? I fear looking at my phone, Michael, every you know, at the weekend, be it a Saturday or Sunday morning. Like I've been in with these residents on a number of times, where it's after happening, and I've seen videos of of some from their footage of their security cameras of what's happened. It's very scary, Michael. Um, one instance where they were sitting in their house on a Saturday evening, and a car landed in beside them at their patio door. You know, this is to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, that a crash barrier is needed because it will obviously protect the residents and it will also protect the road user because you're not going to be leaving the road. Um, now, obviously, it depends on the speed and everything that it's travelling at, but to me, we need to be pushing for this. And the council have been installing um, spe- uh, crash barriers at different locations around the county, but to me, and the reason why I highlight it is if we had another 10%, a 250 euro metre, that's an awful lot more crash barriers, Michael. Well, I'm sure you'd agree with that, Marianne Butler. Absolutely, like like we haven't been found wanting in looking for funding and uh, putting in those crash barriers. They've gone. Up, they've gone. Uh, there's an awful lot of them that have gone on the Carrick Road out of Dundalk, and mm. um, the Blaney Road out of Dundalk. Also, just to add, it, look, it is frustrating. Like I know myself, my own area. Um, I've been kind of trying to get traffic calming, traffic traffic improvement works um, for a long time on the old Dublin Road out of Dundalk. Um, I'm kind of being told no all the time. No, you can't have a traffic warden because the speed limit won't allow it. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And like finally, because of the Green Party in government, the active travel programme that's going to go in there will put in those crossings, will put in those um, cycle lanes, will make it safer for all road users to get out. Okay, but Transport Infrastructure Ireland has said that lack of investment in the roads is going to result in the deaths of 77 people and 381 serious injuries over the next five years. It's, it's a very startling figure. And again, all I can point to is what was in our, the, the budget this year. Additional funding has specifically been allocated to road safety to make those dangerous areas safe. Uh, for all road users. Um, like one of the things that we also need, I think, myself... But this is what your party leader, the Minister for Transport, was told by Transport Infrastructure Ireland in October of last year. Again, I'm pointing to what has happened in the budget this year where additional funding is specifically being allocated to road safety. And again, there are many factors to, to road safety and um, improving it and the road condition is definitely one of them. And where there is a problem with road design or road condition, it has to be addressed to make the road safer. Mm. Okay. Um, Do you believe that Eamon Ryan uh, will be responsible for the deaths of 77 people uh, if the funding that you're talking about is not increased on further? And we all know that inflation is a very important part of any conversation like this. Again, just to point that there has been no cut. There's been a, uh, the, the funding has gone up by 6%. The 10% cut that has been talked about, again, was literally so, uh, the budget line for zero emissions vehicle Ireland 
been moved to a different section. That's what it is. That's why it looks like a cut, but it's not a cut. Mm. Now, you and gone, we're, we're, the funding has gone up by 6% and there is additional funding specifically to tackle road safety. Okay. It has become a huge issue. The, the, the trend was going down for so long. Um, I know myself and Anton, we were at the JPC. The RSA came in and gave us that presentation. The goal here is for zero deaths. And I think everybody in government, on councils around the country, especially in Loud County Council, are working hard towards that. Mm. You don't uh, accept that, Anton Waters, uh, about the um, 6% increase, uh, as you've heard there, uh, on, on the maintenance budget. I have it here, Michael, in, in black and white, programme expenditure, road networks and road safety, over in the right column, minus 10% change from 2024 over 2023. Mm. But that money is reallocated, you've just but, heard. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. Look, we were all look. We're all in the same hymn sheet with road safety. We all support no accidents on the road, Michael. And we're, me and Marianne, as Marianne rightly said, we were at the JPC and we listened to harrowing stories of all different counties, of all the different issues there is. But to me, for Loud County Council, we want more money, more funding to be able to deal with these issues. There is a lot of them throughout the county, not just in North Loud, but in particular when you, you, you see the harrowing case that I'm speaking of, it's very, very dangerous for these people every day. And when I see a cost, I have to represent the people who elected me and say it's not good enough. Okay. All right. Uh, You've also raised concerns about speeding locally um, uh, and what uh, needs to be done in respect of that? More policing? Well, I I have and I I always raise a Michael, especially around Belorgan School and different pinch points around the peninsula. There's issues with speed and you will have seen the Garda Sheikhana, as promised at the JPC meeting a couple of weeks ago, have been doing a number of patrols and unfortunately they are catching a lot of people at excessive speed on the road. So a lot of it is about infrastructure, but a lot of it's about driver behaviour too. And if you're not driving responsibly on the road, you're putting everyone at danger. So um, it is a, a problem. And I know we are. We have just done the speed limit review, and myself and Marianne were working on a couple of ones um, for different speed changes throughout the county. But the national review is welcome. But if you can't enforce the speed limit, it doesn't matter what the sign says. If people won't obey it either, it's a big issue, Michael. You know. Mm, and uh, Marianne Butler, your thoughts on speed? Absolutely, fully agree with Anton there. There was, um, I was talking to uh, one of our senior roads edu- engineers a couple of weeks back and there has been an overwhelming response to, the, to this year's uh, speed limit review. It's something that we do every five years. There is a mechanism to do, change, make changes outside of that, but it's, uh, there's a big one every five years. And he sp- spoke about an over- overwhelming re- response from around the county, people looking for changes and I'd say the majority of them are absolutely reductions in speed limits in County Loud. Um, yeah, and sometimes getting that reduction is the first step into getting traffic calming measures as well. Okay. But look, we, we, it's a frustrating process for mm. us. Like, we're trying to get speed counters and traffic counters put around the county and now we're being told that you know, the council engineers won't place them in locations unless there is a history of accidents. And like what we're trying to do as councillors in a lot of cases is to stop that accident from happening in the first place. And there's a big kind of like uh, information asymmetry here. The council have information that we don't have because that accident data used to be publicly available. And for whatever reason, the RSA, are, uh, you know, have stopped that information being publicly available. So you used to be able to check on a map, see a location, see that there was a serious accident here, you know, um, a, 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 a 
a less serious accident yeah. here. You were able to ch- track the numbers when they happened. Accident you know, And it was a great so amount of information mm-hmm. okay. for us and, you know, improved our case in saying, put in a speed counter here, make improvements here, and we don't have that anymore, and it's very frustrating. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you both indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Green Party Councillor Marianne Butler and her Sinn Féin colleague on Louth County Council, Anton Waters. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Michelle in touch uh, saying uh, that road in Carlingford is dangerous. But when we talk uh, about accidents and all of these accidents that we've been hearing uh, about recently, maybe we should look behind the news and find out what condition the drivers were in. Michelle is saying that she knows uh, of an incident recently uh, where there was a, a crash uh, and uh, the driver was off her head on drink and drugs uh, and how do speed barriers stop that very interesting question indeed Michelle um, we'd Ellen in touch with us saying I have to uh, agree with Anton Waters I was down the country last week hit a pothole and the car just spun lucky there wasn't another car coming uh, and I wasn't speeding says Ellen thank you indeed for that uh, very frightening incident I'm sure for that matter Ellen to have your car turn around like that somebody else uh, texting us uh, this morning saying listening to your show and I think uh, the government parties need to really think uh, about taking some basic maths lessons. Thank you for that. Um, another message from somebody, uh, this time about drugs. If this government truly wants to tackle crime and gangs, then they should legalise, regulate drugs and take uh, the gang's bread and butter away. Maybe then we won't need military to catch drug tankers instead of uh, the drugs. Uh, 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 an opposing view to that from somebody who says your guest is trying to defend a move away from criminalising drugs and answering your questions. It's just justifying the law as it is not my citizens assembly is the hashtag attached to that message and thank you indeed for taking the time to make comment on the program Mag Y in touch with us. I think Mag Y has been a bit mischievous this morning. Uh, she says, is it true that if Sinn Féin got elected uh, and became the government of uh, the Republic of Ireland that they'd gift properties to Hamas here in Ireland, uh, that they're very friendly with Hamas? I don't think so, Mag. Uh, no, I think what Sinn Féin has said is uh, that they would speak to Hamas if they were involved in negotiating a peace settlement because they've said that you should speak to all of uh, the actors uh, in these situations. I don't think they've said anything of the sort and I'm sure that <laughs> you're winding us up. But thanks. Uh, Paddy Duffy, thank you uh, as well. Paddy says, uh, the goodwill and natural sorrow and empathy felt towards Israel after the horrific slaughter of its people on the 7th of October was visceral but they have squandered the goodwill by their response to the whole Palestinians population in Gaza since the Jewish population worldwide is just over 16 million of which just over 7 million live in Israel Uh, and Paddy says he fears for Jewish people who live outside of Israel because of the Israeli response There's a lot of nut jobs out there, uh, he says. Uh, And thank you indeed uh, for your text to to the programme, as always, Paddy, uh, for that matter. Another message uh, that uh, comes to us uh, from a a delivery driver with Just Eat saying that yesterday evening I was 
delivering to an estate on the north side of Drogheda where my car and other vehicles came under attack from thugs throwing fireworks. I had to pull away from the area altogether. They could have caused a serious accident and they put lives at risk. There was no guard presence in the area and they were seriously dangerous. How is this allowed to happen? I, I, I really, I, I don't know. Um, it uh, must have been a very frightening incident. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for telling us about it. Uh, and I'm sure uh, we'll ask uh, the Gardaí uh, to make a, a statement in relation to that uh, and as to why there was no response. I presume there were calls to the Gardaí, but there was no response. Uh, another um, text uh, that comes to us uh, about drugs. This one's from Martin, who says, uh, I used to smoke a, a lot of dope years ago, but hadn't touched it for 15 years. I was at my doctor recently and uh, they told me that I should be cutting down on my drinking, that uh, there was uh, worrying signals relating to my liver. So I heeded the doctor's advice uh, and I bought some weed. I've cut down on the drink uh, as a result uh, and I have a little bit of weed and a couple of drinks and I've never been better. Uh, Great not to be getting up with a hangover, says Martin. Thank you indeed. Margaret uh, in Navin says, I've a 15-year-old son who seems to do nothing other than smoke weed all day. What can I do? I don't want to call the guards. I don't want him to be in trouble, but I'm really, really worried that all he does all day is smoke weed. I don't even know how he can afford to do it. Well, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us as well. Uh, our telephone number, if you want to share your thoughts with us, is 041 2000. That's 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. And you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, RTE has had full-time staff working for it, uh, but about 695 uh, people who are classed uh, as self-employed have actually been full-time employees. This information was uh, given to Sinn Féin's Melda Munster by the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, and Melda Munster joins us on the line now. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, and uh, I'd like to hear more about that, obviously, in a couple of minutes. But uh, perhaps uh, I could ask you about the terrible news coming from Queens uh, in New York over the weekend and the death, it would seem by all accounts, the murder of 39-year-old Denise Morgan in a, a case of murder-suicide. It really is a, an awful tragedy for family and friends in Tully Allen uh, to have to come to terms with. Uh, and I, I'm sure, uh, like everybody else, you'd like to sympathise with all of those people who are close to Denise. Yes, Mike, it's it's difficult even to talk about it. Um Heartbreaking, horrific news for the family. You couldn't even comprehend what they're going through. I mean, they're absolutely devastated. And our deepest sympathy and my deepest sympathy goes out to Denise's family. And just to let them know they're in the thoughts and prayers of the entire community. And we're there for them. And there's not a whole lot else you can say. I mean, it's just heartbreaking news and you know if you've children living abroad you always or any child you always fear 
a phone call or a knock at the door, but something as horrific as this coming to you and it happening so far away. There's just no words, really, Mike, to be honest. But just to say that my deepest sympathies and thoughts and that of the entire community are with are with the the family at this moment. Mm. I think that probably echoes the way everybody feels. It's such a small world most of the time and sometimes places like Queen's especially uh, for uh, those close to Denise uh, must seem so far away uh, at the moment and uh, I'm sure uh, people will be making their way there and trying to come to terms with uh, this terrible news uh, that uh, came home uh, over the weekend. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, you're here to talk to us uh, about uh, some of uh, the latest revelations in relation to RTE. There's always been this um, problem, if you like, uh, with RTE claiming that uh, people who worked for it were self-employed. Uh, it turns out 695 people in that situation. It's a shocking amount of people, isn't it? It is. And there's po- probably even more um Mike, because this goes back, right back to the 80s. So there's possibly even more um, that the scoping exercises hasn't covered as yet. But there are people that, uh, workers that were denied holiday pay, sick leave, pension entitlements, the chance of promotion, the security of a, you know, a secure job as such. Um, They're bogusly classed as self-employed. And we're talking about the public broadcaster here. And even going back a few years ago when we tried questioning the original Director General of RTE at the Public Accounts Committee, there was just we were just stonewalled. Um, we had to discover ourselves then that they had already paid revenue 1.2 million. The Department of Social um, Protection had um, said that, you know, had instructed them to pay that money. But I had asked last week have the money set aside to pay revenue. And it was the first time they actually gave the figures publicly. Mm. So they said it was just under 20 million. But that was to pay revenue because they have to pay revenue by law. Um, You know, because it's it's breaking the law. But um, I asked uh, what monies they had set aside. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. To pay the workers that were um, denied their basic workers' entitlements for years, and um, they have no money set aside, 
and I had got word um, the day before when the RTE Director General had met with the um, RTE staff um, and he had said, it was told to me that he had said um, correcting that wrong with financial compensation would bankrupt bankrupt RTE so it won't happen. I put that to him and he said uh, he doesn't think that those words were used but that came from the workers that were there the day before. But it's one thing to set aside the money for revenue but they can't just dismiss you know the, mm. the remaining and, and the, the, the money owed to revenue from. is money that should have been paid to revenue by RTE should um, have been paid to revenue with stamps yeah PRSI mm. entitled our yeah. stamps employee employer and, and if stamps. Class, is classifying somebody as self-employed when they're actually a full-time employee an offence well I mean not so sure if that's an offence as such but what you're doing is you're denying the workers those rights and I suppose really it is because you're you're employing them and you're classing them as self-employed when in fact they're not mm. they're you know many of them had worked there for for decades and um, well so it's in, incorrect information to it, revenue isn't it yes absolutely that's and that's why they've set aside because they know um they, that they're going to have to pay revenue so denying those workers their entitlements Mm. goes against workers' rights. And, some, and sometimes the workers, though, will like this arrangement, if you like, uh, because um, they'll be able to offset some of their earnings uh, um, against tax that would be owed. They pay uh, a lower rate of PRSI. Uh, and if they're self-employed, they can have a, a company and have expenses uh, that may not exist otherwise, let's say. Well, that would suit the ones at the very top. You know, they, they, the ones that come under the, the top 10 earners and, the, you know, presenters and that sort of thing that um, they can't, you know, there's huge money coming in and they can offset it against expenses and all of that sort of thing. But for ordinary workers, which the majority of these, uh, this number is, that, as far as we can understand, you know, there was no real be- long-term benefit to them whatsoever. Mm. And that's why there's such grievance felt, because they have been denied their pension entitlements, their holiday, all the entitlements that any worker is entitled to. But when you think of the brass neck of RTE to treat workers like that, and then to stonewall questions, come back three, four, five years, mm. and now we're at the situation where they've, they've to set aside at least, and it will be at least 20 million to pay revenue, and that's all public money. Okay. Has things changed, do you think, in RTE recently? Uh, we've a new Director General. I think uh, you're waiting on more documents uh, from Kevin Backhurst, uh, and uh, there's a memo relating to a pay deal with Ryan Tuberty. You mentioned the top earners there uh, that you're waiting on. Um, uh, are you seeing a, a change in how RTE is responding? Well, I raised that with the minister the other day. Firstly, I put in two priority questions. The first one was about the RTE still refusing to furnish us with um, the key document, which was which the start of the whole mess that we've seen, and um, the refusal to hand to hand it over to the public accounts committee. And my question was denied. Um, so then I put in the second question around the bogus self-employment 
and that too was denied. So I had to put in something vague then, looking for an update on the ongoing um, investigations mm. so that I could raise these issues with the Minister. Now, I did raise the issue about the, them refusing to furnish us the key documents that will go to the heart of everything that happened and the fact of, you know, how are they going to ever create trust or rebuild trust um, if they don't furnish it with, and are they going to force the Public Accounts Committee to, to go to court over getting to try and get access to these documents. Now, the Minister did say that she had met with the Director-General um, that week, I think, or the week previous, mm. and that she, he had said that he's going to try to find a way to solve it, to, you know, to looking for a way to furnish us with those documents. Um, now, whether that transpires into fact, we don't know yet, mm. but she seemed in her response to me confident enough that he was looking for a way to do this um, because, you know, they've been claiming legal privilege, but sure, they have the right to waive that legal privilege and they know it's one of the core documents. And you just question, what are they trying to keep from the public by not furnishing us with this particular key document? Okay, well, we do know that uh, we are looking at uh, an institution that's in grave danger mm. because of uh, the drop in the licence fee uh, and indeed uh, the drop, it would seem, in the viewership of uh, The Late Late Show. Uh, you're talking about high earners, Patrick Keelty replacing Ryan Turbidy. Uh, it doesn't seem uh, as though the change has worked too well. Can I just ask you about a, a separate issue altogether, though, while you're with us? Uh, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this uh, or if uh, you want to react to it. And it's not something I can verify at the moment, but we are trying to make contact with the Gardaí in Drogheda to ask them uh, for a statement in relation to what we're told by a texter was an attack on him as a justy delivery driver in Moneymore last night. Uh, he said a gang of thugs attacked his vehicle and a number of vehicles. Uh, the guards were called, says our texter, but there was no response. As I say, it's not something I can verify. It's not something uh, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, but do you wish to react to it? Oh, well, if that's happened, that's um, disgusting. Uh, delivery people go about their business. You know, um, that's their job. And, you know, I know in larger cities, they always have the fear of coming under attack and there's areas that they they won't go to because of it. But for if that is factual and that happened, um, I would say to that that driver, just even to contact my office and I will contact the guards on his behalf, or his or her behalf, um, that shouldn't be allowed to continue because what happens then is delivery companies, um, for this, obviously for the safety of their drivers, will stop going into particular areas. So, you know, um, but for any worker to be attacked in the, while they're doing their job is reprehensible and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. So if it did happen, and obviously, you know, that worker got an awful fright and mm. and everything else. You know, either contact your station again or contact my office on West Street and um, we can contact the guards on their behalf. Yeah, OK. We are trying to make contact with uh, the delivery driver uh, and uh, mm. I'm sure that the guardie will verify the incident, uh, but uh, very serious by the sounds of it, uh, indeed. Uh, Imelda, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining okay. us uh, this morning. That's Sinn Féin TD for Louth, Imelda Munster. 
LMFM. As you've been hearing, Gardaí are leaving the force in uh, droves. 106 uh, police officers have left on Gardaí over the course of the last year. More and more, according to exit interviews, the reason for this is bullying and unfair treatment. Let's speak to Tara McManus, who's Assistant General Secretary of uh, the Garda Representative Association. Good morning to you, Tara, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, this seems very odd in a disciplined organisation such as Angarda Shiakana. Have you experienced yourself of bullying or have uh, you encountered anyone who's been bullied in the force? Good morning, Michael, um, and thank you for having me on today. Um, obviously, in my current role as the Assistant to the General Secretary, I get a lot of emails and I let it, let it, uh, sorry, get a lot of phone calls in here to the office from members who are looking for help and looking for support with regards to bullying. And we obviously have policies in place within a Gardaí Connet that deal specifically with that. So we would guide them through that process. Um, unfortunately, in, in the 12 months that I've been here, um, I'm, I'm dealing with an awful lot of that issues. But I was still very surprised to see that it was the number one reason as to why people were actually resigning from a Gardaí Connet. When I started this research, I would assume these issues were to do with um, pensions and salary and things like that and that people were leaving for, for, mm. for better jobs. That is actually not the case. They're actually leaving because of unfair treatment, because of uh, discipline or what they perceive to be the threat of discipline or that they feel that they're being bullied. And um, is this a, a new phenomenon? Um, well, I suppose, Michael, if I was to look back and reflect on my own career to date and uh, I've, I've 25 years done in Angarda Giacana, um, I suppose any of the, the dark times, I'll say, that I would have experienced personally were to do with conflict within the unit that I was on or conflict within the various postings that I had. Um, so I suppose it, it is it is something, but I, I wouldn't have thought it was at the level that it was until I actually took up this position and actually started this particular research. OK, uh, we would be aware of uh, Sergeant Boris McCabe uh, and the treatment uh, that he endured because he was a, a whistleblower. Um, wh- why are, are, are people, uh, in your experience, being bullied within Angarda Shiakana? Um Well, I suppose if we look at the fact that predominantly it's people with less service, so um, almost 60% of the participants that I spoke to that actually resigned from Angarda Shiakana had less than five years service. So this seems to be very much aimed at a younger generation of young guards coming in. Now, these guards are coming in, they're under a lot of pressure with regards to their academic studies because they're studying for their, their policing degree and they're learning the trade and you know they're starting to get embedded into local communities. They seem to be a little bit more at risk of this behaviour than we'll say those um, of a higher rank and or those with more service. But that's that's not that's what the, the survey is telling us. But the, the epidemic of bullying or the issue of bullying within Angarda Shikana seems to be very much um, across the whole spectrum. Since my research was actually published yesterday, along with all the other people that have contacted me of Garda rank, I've actually had people of other ranks actually contacting me saying, I'm so glad that you're highlighting this issue. I'm a sergeant. I'm inspector, whatever the case. And I also have been subjected to bullying. So it seems it's not just uh, concentrated on the Garda members. It's actually across the entire 
the, the entire actually organisation itself. Mm. Uh, it's a small group of people that you spoke to, 40 people who were leaving the force and 70% of those people that you did speak to said it was because of unfair treatment and or bullying by management. Uh, can you detail how people have been treated unfairly? Well, I don't want to go into the, into the, the confidential de- details, I suppose, of, of, of what people, um, you know, t- talk to me about in these interviews. But it was just this feeling that what they did was never good enough. And I suppose this threat of discipline is a real thing. Discipline has, has really increased within Angarda Shikana and it's almost been used now as a training tool. We have young guards coming out of Templemore not getting the supervision, not getting the guidance that they require. They make a mistake and that mistake is dealt with by way of discipline. Instead of somebody sitting down and saying, this is why you made the mistake, this is how you made the mistake, this is what we can do to rectify the mistake. Instead, they're being disciplined and we would say that that is not the right approach to use. It's not what discipline is designed for. Mm. It's designed to deal with wrongdoing. It's designed to deal with people who are, you know, habitual offenders with regards to perhaps coming in late or whatever. It's not designed as a training tool. Um, so th- th- that sort of culture is, is creeping in where people actually feel that their decision-making is undermined by the threat of discipline. And that's one of the other very concerning trends and one of the other concerning uh, results that came up mm. with re- regards to people and their decision-making and the fact that they feel over 70% of them had a fear of discipline and that fear was actually dictating how they made decisions. Why is that, do you think, though? Because, I, I mean, from what you're saying, um, it's sergeants, inspectors, superintendents, chief superintendents who are the bullies. Uh, they are the management, uh, essentially, but they're long-serving Gardaí, I take it, for the most part. Uh, and what's happened with them? What's changed that they've changed their approach? We think this is, this is coming from the top down, as I said, where discipline is is being used. It's very hard in Angarda Shiakana to... There's not a whole lot of positivity there at the moment. And, and people are saying, I can't get by by saying that I introduced this particular policy or introduced this particular procedure. But I could prove that I'm really good for promotion if I show that I can discipline people and that I can, you know, deal with wrongdoing in a very harsh type of manner. So we think that's where a lot of it is coming from. But I mean, we see there even in, in the media in very, very low, in very recent weeks, where a guard is now facing discipline and possibly criminal charges with regards to the manner of his driving. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that sort of incident is weighing very heavily on our members' minds when they make decisions, when they enter into an incident, when they go to a call. This is what they're thinking about. They're thinking, if I do A, B and mm. C here, is this going to be open me up to discipline, despite the fact that I'm doing my best in this situation, I'm doing my best with the resources I have, with what I have available to me, but am I leaving myself open to discipline? That's actually weighing on our members very heavily. And when you say from the very top, from the Commissioner, from Drew Harris, is it? Well, I suppose since the Commissioner came in, he was adamant that he was, you know, going to, I suppose, root out all wrongdoers within Angarda Shikana and, and deal with things very heavy-handedly. And we see a lot of people, we've over 116 members out now on long-term suspension, and a lot of those people have not received any charges. They haven't actually been served with discipline papers as of yet. So they're out on long-term suspension with no real end to this coming. So we would say that sometimes those suspensions are not warranted. And another approach such as putting somebody dealing with paperwork or putting them somewhere where they're not dealing with the public might be an easier approach or might be another alternative to actually suspending people. But there definitely has been Mm. a new change with regards to to the Commissioner and 
a heavy-handed approach, we would say, to internal discipline. Is this round two uh, of the bout that the GRA started against uh, the commissioner? You won the roster's row, it seems, uh, and uh, the commissioner buckled, it would uh, appear. Uh, Is this uh, a second go at uh, undermining Drew Harris, uh, who it's clear the GRA doesn't want as commissioner? I don't think that's it at all. I mean, Michael, I have been talking to you about doing this research for over six months now. And um, I always said that I would try and interview 40 people. And when I had the 40 done, I, you know, spent time then actually putting the research together. So it's just the research is now ready. And we felt now was the right time to actually publish the results. This is not about round twos or round ones or winning rounds or anything like that. Our job here is to represent the rank and file members of Angarda Shea who come to us day in, day out telling us about the problems that they're encountering, encountering and the issues that they have. So it's, it's not about knockout punches or anything like that. It's literally about emphasising the problems that our members have, the problems that they're experiencing. We now have over 120 members resigned from the force in 2023. And, you know, we still have two, two and a half months, shall we say, left of the year. So potentially we could have another 30 to 40 people resigned. I know across the globe and if you look at, at resignation figures across economies and stuff the 1% that are resigning from a Gardaí economy isn't deemed a high number but for us within the force we would see this as a very very critical high number particularly when we're struggling to actually recruit people to come into Angarvish Econ in the first place. So we are under-resourced and losing qualified, professional, educated people is not where we want to be. Okay, Tara, we leave there for the moment. Thank you as always for joining us on the programme. Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association, the GRA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the opening of the National Children's Hospital and when it might be. It seems it won't be until after the next general election, which will be in March of 2025. April of that year at the earliest, but it also appears that it could be January of 2026 before the doors are open to patients. Colin Burke, Finnegal, spokesperson on health and a member of the Public Accounts Committee joins us and a very good morning to you Colin Burke thanks for taking the time to be with us Uh, what's your understanding at this stage of when the hospital may actually be in use well we're in a situation as you know the um, people involved in the building were were in with the public accounts committee last week Um, they've advised that the project is now 92% complete but of course it's the last fit out and finish um, will take time Um, there has been a problem there in that the contract was to be finished by September 2022 because, you know, they got an extension due to COVID of time. So it was to be September 2022. Um, that has ex- that now expired. And I suppose the one thing that has happened, you know, there's, there's a clause in the building contract that once in building inflation goes above 4%, then they um, we are responsible for the inflationary costs to date, the amount that that has cost, building inflation has cost us 55 million. But our argument now and the argument of the team managing this project is that because the contract wasn't finished um, at the due date, then any um, inflationary factor now in building costs cannot be added on to the cost overall. So that's the argument that would be put forward there because it's mm. not 
the um, <clears throat> it's not the National Children's Hospital that has caused the delay, it's the contractors itself. And that so cost could be €2 billion, euro, I think, but um, when will it open, do you know? Well, that's the, the... My understanding is that the October of 2024, um, it will be handed over at that session. There will be a whole lot of time in relation to commissioning because it'll be, you know, it's a very... Um, big project there's over 6,000 rooms there's uh, you know uh, the whole thing is really modern um, as regards the fit out and as regards what will be available there so everything has to be checked and rechecked like you have operating theatres you have IT you have to make sure that all of the services into each ward is fully operational and remember this project is a lot of people don't realise that there's over 6,000 rooms in this building um, 380 will be inpatient facilities but then you have a whole lot of rooms in relation to medical training in relation to clinics in relation to theatres so for instance there'll be over uh, 20 operating theatres there and I suppose that's the big problem that you have about uh, medicine at the moment is that you can appoint all the consultants mm. you like but if you don't have access to theatres then services will be delayed so we would have over 20 I think it's 20 theatres will be in place there um, and I think it's about access and then an awful lot of procedures now whereas before there were inpatient procedures an awful lot of the procedures are daycare procedures so the importance of having yeah. access to theatre is extremely important. But it, it's nearly a decade uh, since planning permission uh, was lodged at the St. James's Hospital site. Is that acceptable? Well, it's it's actually longer because, remember, the, pro- the previous project went for planning and it was the planning mm. was turned down. Um, so In 2015, and that's when the application was made for St. James's, but uh, yep. I wasn't going to go back as far uh, as Bertie or Hearn. Uh, but, uh, I mean... It, but like, I mean, we're really talking about this for over 30 years. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're coming to the conclusion of it. As I said, the project is and was confirmed to us at the meeting the last day that is 92% complete. The fit-out and all of that does take a, a longer period of time. The um, remember, for instance, there is going to be a lot of people mm. mightn't realise this. There is a library for over two thousand five hundred postgrad students. So there is seminar rooms, there is lecture theatres. So all of this. Well, there's the nothing. There, well. there, there is nothing at the moment, and that 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 is the problem. Uh, and well, that's why that's that's why I'm asking you if you believe yeah. it's acceptable or not. Well, the building project it is not acceptable where and this is why we're sticking to our guns on this thing is that the um the project was to be completed by september 2022 as i said an extension had been given given because of covid Mm. the we are now arguing that they're not entitled to any additional inflationary cost as a result of that delay and that's the argument we're now putting forward as regards costs Yes, this project will be expensive, but if you look at it, there's a, a very interesting website to look at is, um, is the Kids Foundation in Canada, where they're doing a similar project. It's um, Their project is going to cost about 3.6 billion Canadian dollars, which is about 2.6 billion euros. The interesting about, thing about that project is that the government there are only providing two thirds of the funding. The other one third has been collected by the um, people who are having the hospital built, and mm. so far they've over they've collected over one billion Canadian dollars 
from IT companies, from medical devices companies. Okay, uh, uh, and maybe if we go to build another hospital, we can follow that model. But uh, the government is to foot the bill for this particular hospital. And how much is it, it going to cost? Will will it cost? Will it cost less than two billion euro if uh, the additional costs due to inflation are, are, are borne by the? sent on the, the document to you about the level of claims that are in there mm. you know where the builder is alleging that there there are additional items gone in um, and the uh, for instance the number of claims ready for determination this is the case where say the builders mm. got specifications they're saying they had to do additional work and, and that could lead to that 2 billion before you get into inflation uh, and that's an increase on the 1.43 billion figure uh, and that's a, a lot of money uh, where is that money going to come from uh, will Stephen Donnelly be looking for a, a bailout for the children's hospital in the way that he was looking for a, a bailout for uh, the uh, overall budget this year well the you see the issue in relation to claims for instance give you an idea of the number of claims 1,937 claims which amounts to 769 million has been put in already. Um, some of these have been dealt with, but an awful lot of them are being um, gone through. And the amount of money that has actually been paid out, additional money paid out, has actually been quite small. So each one of these claims has to be looked at and adjudicated on, and that's being dealt with. In relation to the overall cost, I think it's too early yet to give an idea of the overall cost because of all of these additional claims and because of the fact that this is a complicated project and that it's not straightforward. There are additional items that went in. There was also a change in the sense of the time scale involved. There was new um, equipment or new ways of doing things mm. came on board as well. So there had to be an adjustment on that as well. Mm. So, do, you know, do, do you think that you'll be making these explain, explanations uh, during the next general election campaign? Well, the in relation to the healthcare sector, remember the population of this country has increased by 1.5 million in 23 years. That's a 40% increase. Mm. We have been talking about this children's hospital for over 30 years. Mm. We need to get it built. We've, we need to get okay. the three hospitals. If, if that's yes, you believe that you will be making right. these explanations during the next general uh, election campaign, do you think people will be saying to you, we don't want excuses, we want solutions from our government? But, there is, but the solution is getting the hospital built, which is something that which we have done. It has been eluding us, uh, as you say, for 30 years, certainly over the last decade. We can, you see, we can talk about projects and about what they're costing but at the end of the day if you look at comparisons with other and the one I gave you is one if anyone wants to check up the Facebook page called Sick Kids Foundation and Mm. I did a consultation with the Canadian authorities on the hospital there they built in for instance a 15% inflation cost Mm. per annum on their project in Canada we need to realise that if I sign a contract in 2018 building costs five years later are going to be extremely uh, are going mm. to be totally different and to say that you can and did we not realise that why didn't we put the safeguards in place has this been an incompetence on the part of government no the, the contract that was signed was the standard contract that was done in relation to public contracts at the time for instance we've run into problems in relation to schools around the country where you know contractors came in they gave a price they suddenly found that they couldn't complete the contract on the price because of building inflation in relation to this one we are saying we have a tie down now in relation to building inflation September 2022 is a cut off point we are saying the builders are not entitled to claim for 
building position. Yes, they are entitled to claim for where additional work has been required because of change of plans or items that were not included in the plans and because, you know, the the mm. way um, the, the delivery of equipment and services has changed over the last five years as well. So you have to build that in. But remember, this is a project which is the length of Grafton Street. It's a seven-storey building. It has two floors for mm. over a thousand car parking yeah, spaces. It's way so over budget and it's delayed by years. Yeah, but the, the problem is that, you know, people talked about it for 20 years. Mm. We've got on and building it and we're delivering it. And that's the problem that, you know, we need in relation to, for instance, we have three elective hospitals that we need to get built. We're only at the design stage in each one of those. Mm-hmm. We need to get on with those projects as well. Okay. And I think it's about how we can fast track. And as I said, the population of this country has increased by 40% in 23 years. We now need to be able to fast track projects in relation to healthcare. And we've done it very well in relation to schools in, in most parts of the country. Yes, we've run into problems in some areas, but in a lot of areas we've fast tracked the whole delivery of schools. Okay. We need to fast track the delivery of services, especially in relation to healthcare, and we need to make sure we can respond to the changes that are there. And remember now, in relation to, this is in relation to. Uh, paediatrics that we're building this hospital mm. we also need to uh, advance services in relation to elderly care okay. the elderly okay. care population has increased dramatically in the last number of years people are living longer mm. uh, life expectancy perhaps we increased. can leave that conversation for another day but uh, I think people will agree with you that uh, uh, lessons could be learned from the experience absolutely okay. every you do you can learn lessons from but the important thing now is the delivery and get it up and running so that we can have a modern system and that also we can make it attractive for people who have expertise in healthcare can come and work and Mm. deliver. Indeed, staffing the hospital when it is open will possibly be another day's conversation for that matter. Colm, I have to leave it there. I'm over time. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for joining us this morning. Colm Burke is Fine Gael's spokesperson on health. Let me bring you some of the messages coming to us uh, this morning. We were talking about contractors or uh, self-employed people uh, who, it turns out, are actually employed by RTA, nearly 700 of them. Uh, a text uh, from somebody saying a uh, contractor of a service and for service workers would be filing tax returns, marrying in with this and are aware they don't do this blindly. They are not victims of this. They pay less taxes and can be better uh, for them. Also, just not when it comes to the welfare, uh, to welfare. There are very clear lines on what can, what you can uh, do uh, and uh, not not do as an employee and as a self-employed person. Every inspector and auditor would know this and have ticked the box. No offence to Imelda, but how can you stonewall an inquiry like that? Any normal company would be exposed and the directors held up. Everyone has to be involved in this. Every internal finance person, internal and auditor, external all see these books. It's hilarious at this point. Uh, another WhatsApp message from Mairead who says, Michael, that 15-year-old weed smoker should be in school. I feel very sorry for his mother uh, and she would be doing him a great favour by going to the guards who could refer him to some programme uh, and get his life on track. It's also worrying where he's getting the money from. Thanks uh, for that, Mairead. Uh, uh, Anthony Nardi says if Kevin Backhurst wants to make good with the viewing public and restore the licence paying figures, he needs to tackle the unjustified salaries of the rest of these light entertainment programme presenters that are the source of uh, much of uh, the public fury. 
These two programmes alone presented by Mr Duffy and Mr Darcy cost almost a million euro uh, between them each year for an organisation on the way to bankruptcy. They should never have uh, commanded salaries comparable with presidents and prime ministers. This happened because of some very foolish uh, and reckless negotiating uh, with agents, says Anthony. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that. Uh, We had Cahill in Mornington in touch with us saying, uh, I think uh, that we soundbite sums things up perfectly. You asked a simple question about when the children's hospital will be open only to be met with absolute silence. <laughs> Thank you indeed, Col. Uh, very uh, uh, apt indeed. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed if you have uh, been in touch. Just to remind you, our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 0861-800-658. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, the Irish Examiner has been reporting on Ukrainians arriving in- into this country. The paper says uh, that government officials are of the view that the current approach is unsustainable and unsuitable and that Ireland's approach is significantly different to that of other EU countries. The idea... Uh, according to the Irish Examiner is that there will be a new policy. This uh, will be documented in a memo which is uh, going to go to Cabinet and it will say that after three months, Ukrainians will have to either find accommodation in the private rental sector or take a pledged property through the offer of a home scheme. Let's uh, speak uh, to John Lannan of Duras. John is uh, the CEO of uh, Duras. A very good morning to you, John, and thank Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, what will that mean uh, in practice? Um, does that mean that um, we'll have Ukrainians on the streets, in other words? Good morning. Um, and this this is our, our concern. I mean, there's no doubt that there, um, the arrival of people from Ukraine as a result of the war there has added significantly to the... Um, the work that the Department of Children have had to do to find accommodation, over 90,000 people have arrived. We've seen an ongoing deterioration in the standards of accommodation that's been provided up to the point where people have been living in tents in, in recent months. The over-reliance on hotels certainly remains problematic as well. Um, um, but you know, if people are not, as you say, provided with accommodation by the state, they need to be able to access the private rental market or to find pledged properties. Now, Mm. there's a limit to the number of pledged properties that that are available. The problem we have, of course, here in Ireland is that there's also a problem with the amount of private rented accommodation that's available, and that's a huge barrier even for people who are working. Remember, Uh, a zombie (laughs) rental market uh, and very difficult to find somewhere to rent, let alone uh, afford it. Uh, and we don't have enough pledged properties as things stand. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. And and there's a further problem then as well if you look at the fact that people from Ukraine may have to try and find rented accommodation, and that's that they cannot currently access the local authority housing lists or HAP, which is the housing assistance payment. Now, HAP isn't ideal for anybody. Um, the limits um are, are often insufficient to access private rental accommodation for many people and low incomes, and it also fails to provide security in terms of long-term accommodation. But um, at the moment, with the way that that policy is set up, there is a risk that many people from Ukraine could become homeless if they're not 
provided with ongoing state accommodation. Mm. Well, would it not be inevitable? Um, I think it would, and, and, mm. and unfortunately with the way things are going and the increasing number of um, people who are homeless, the fact that we're coming into winter, this is um, adding to the difficulties that are faced um, by, by the, um, the the state. Um, the, um, the the facts are that we, we do need to find solutions here in Ireland to the lack of housing. We need to find more social, we need to find more affordable housing. Whether people are from Ukraine or they're international protection applicants or they're Irish people who are homeless um, and, and in need of some place to live, um, there, there is a need to, to do better. Now we've looked at um, some the delivery of some modular units. There are um, winter-secured cabins being proposed now for um, Ukrainians. But again, these are very short-term. And there is a worry mm. as we come into winter that if people are back in tents, that that is extremely, um, extremely difficult for people and has has a very negative impact on their health and well-being. Is the system being overwhelmed? Uh, I mean, is it too? Tall a task, are we not able to cope? And is the response that we're throwing in the towel? Um, I think we, we've, we've struggled in some respects to cope. Having said that, um, Ireland has done um, extremely well in terms of the amount of um, beds it has found for people arriving from Ukraine, for people arriving from persecution wars in other parts of the world. Um, in the most part accommodation has been found but we're still lacking that mid to long term place and that strategy around what will happen as people have to move out of hotels as they have to move out of the um, other accommodation that they're being provided with. It would appear now that the government are um, well at least let's say pointing out to people that if they come to Ireland from Ukraine they're not likely to get the same um, support as um, people up to now have got. Um, there, there was also, I noticed in that examiner article, mm. a, um, a suggestion which was of even more concern was that the government might be considering reductions in social welfare pay to Ukrainians. Um, nobody should be without adequate social welfare. That includes um, international protection applicants as well. And they receive just €38 Euro a week now. So instead of lowering the bar, the government should be raising it to ensure that everyone has income that's sufficient to meet their basic needs. Mm. Uh, another I- issue that's uh, reported in the Irish Examiner is uh, that Ukrainians, uh, if they're staying in a hotel or elsewhere, have the right uh, to leave wherever the accommodation is for seven days over a six-month period. But that's been suspended. Why is that being suspended? Indeed, yes. And this is something that we've um, raised questions with the department around seeking clarifications. Um, it would appear that they have told us in to date that um, there, there were a number of people who were leaving for long periods of time, but more worryingly, there were... Um, beds that were being paid for by the department that weren't being used. Now, I think that instead of penalising Ukrainians and, and putting a more uh, quite a stringent and often indeed workable policy in place, they should be ensuring better oversight, better management and better monitoring of the accommodation that's being provided and that they're paying for. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons uh, the beds are empty is because uh, the Ukrainians have gone back to Ukraine. I've heard of stories of people going back and back here then again afterwards. 
Indeed, and some people will mm. choose to go back. And if that happens, and if a, if a bed or a room is freed up, then it should become available to to others. So there needs to be clear um, oversight and 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 better management of of all of that. But we've got concerns over cases where people who might be have been able to find work, for example, or who might need to visit family members in other parts of of Ireland at short notice have to leave their accommodation. But with this new proposed policy, they could potentially be deemed to have given up their accommodation if they did that. Okay, John, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, we'll uh, await uh, the decision of government. John Lannan is uh, the CEO of Duras uh, and that's uh, where our time runs out on us once again today. Thanks uh, as always to Megan McGuire who researched and Chris Murray was in the control chair. I'm Michael, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday or tomorrow morning, <laughs> excuse me, tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.